anything can happen in uh, in God's house. And most of the time we pray that people would come to faith in Christ, uh, that uh, come and visit churches and people listening to this message. And we do welcome you uh, for whenever you'll be listening to this message, maybe sometime this afternoon or sometime the first part of this week. Um, we're glad that you're, we're all here this morning by God's grace and, and giving us the will to be here. And for those listening, uh, today is the beginning of a two-part, which the second part will be this evening on our Sunday evening service. Um, the title is The Controversy and Confrontation of a Blind Man Healed. And we'll get into that story in just a moment. But I come across this story early this past week, and I couldn't pass this, pass this up. So the story is there's an atheist who uh, come aboard a, a jetliner for a passenger flight to another nearby city. He was sitting next to a dusty old cowboy on the airplane, and he turned to the cowboy and he asked, do you want to talk? And he knew that flights go so much quicker if you engage in conversation with a neighbor you're sitting next to. And the old cowboy who had just started to read his book slowly closed his book and turned and looked to the atheist and said, well, what do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know, said the atheist. How about we talk about why there is no God and there's no heaven or hell and there's no life after death as he smiled smugly. You want to talk about that? Okay, the old cowboy said. Those could be interesting topics, but let me ask you a question first. You have a horse, and you have a cow, and you have a deer, and they all eat the same stuff, right? Yeah, the atheist said they all eat grass. Then he said, but yet a deer excretes little pellets, while a cow, well, they let out big flat patties, and a horse excretes clumps. We ought to know that Jennifer's mom and dad are all kinds of clumps all over behind the barn. Horses let out clumps, he said. Why do you suppose that is? The old cowboy asked the atheist. To which the cowboy replies, but first the atheist said, I have no idea. Please tell me. The cowboy replied, do you really feel qualified to discuss God or he heaven or hell or there's no life after death when you don't even know crap at all you don't know crap is that allowed in the church pew well if it ain't it's, it is right now because i couldn't pass this up you think well what in the world does this have to do with the discussion today of the controversy and and, and confrontation of a blind man and the title uh daniel has the confidence and confrontation it's supposed to be the controversy, and but that's fine. He had lots of confidence. But anyway, what does that have to do with this? Well, as we're going to see, the Pharisees didn't know crap at all. I should have titled that message, not Pharisees not knowing crap, but I didn't want to go that route. So as we are continuing in our study in uh, John's seven sign miracles, Jesus the way, encouraging your faith every day. And if you've got that acrostic of titled the sign, uh, the first, the letter T for thee was the turning water into wine. And then the H was the healing of the nobleman's son. And then the E was for, we talked about elevating of the lame man. 
And then the word sign, the first letter S was for the supper for 5,000. The I was for the interim on the sea or Jesus walking on water. And then last Sunday on Father's Day, we got into the G of the word sign. That was the Jesus giving sight to the blind man. Now, we last time and last Sunday's message, we looked at the first seven verses of John chapter 9 in this miracle where we discussed Jesus approaching the blind man. Then the disciples asked him whether this man's blindness was a result uh, of any sin he may have committed or his parents. And Jesus corrected his thinking in John chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. What did Jesus say? He said, he answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We, He said, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. Jesus was saying it would be an, a great opportunity at that in this man's life, this condition he had at birth, for God to work in and through this man's blindness, okay? So that, number one, God's glory would be revealed. And then also, that as a result, this man might turn to the true light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself. And we know uh, what Jesus did next. He spat on the ground and he took the clay of the ground and he took the, the spit and the dirt and he made it and packed it into a packing type mud and he applied it to the man's eyes. And then he told him plainly after that, he said to go to the pool of Siloam. And then the man obeyed exactly what he did out of obedient faith we talked about last Sunday. Faith with obedience, obedient faith. And then he came back seeing. Now, that leads to this morning. This leads to the controversy surrounding the healing. And it had controversy, but as Daniel had in that title, it was, he was full of confidence as well. But now look at verses 8 through 12. Therefore, because of all of what had just happened, therefore the neighbors... And those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. And of course, the man kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. He didn't know because when he got back from the pool of Salome, Jesus was nowhere to be found at that particular point in time. Now notice the exchange going on back and forth here. Some were saying, is this the man we've seen for all of those years, blind and begging for whatever he can get his hands on? Some were saying, yep, that's him. That's that blind man that we've all seen begging and pleading for all kinds of mercy from people to give him things. Others were saying, no, 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 this can't be this man. This is somebody who looks a lot like him, somebody like him. And John says, during all that commotion amongst the neighbors, what was the healed blind man saying? Hey, hey, it was me. It is me. I'm right here. I'm the one you're talking about. It ain't no one else that's different, that's just like me. It is me right here. I'm standing in front of you. I'm the one who was healed. It seemed too amazing to be true, though, didn't it? This man from birth, 
born blind, all of a sudden now can see. It was too good to be true. Now, you know the old phrase, if it looks too good or it sounds good to be true, then it must not be true. Well, most of the time that is true, but right here's an exception. It was an absolute truth and what had just happened to this man. Now, then the question was asked in verse 10, how then they asked him, was your eyes open? How did you come to be uh, completely healed of this blindness? And he said in verse 11, the man who is called Jesus. Now, it seems though that this man really had not much of an idea or he knew very little about Jesus. After all, Jesus had just come upon him uh, a little earlier. Now, all he seemed to know was this man's name and that his name was Jesus, the man who healed him. Now, how do you figure he knew his name? Well, there's only one logical explanation. How did this blind man know the name of Jesus? Well, he had no sense of sight at that, at that time when Jesus approached him and seen him. And the disciples asked him about how his blindness come to being. His hearing probably was very good. When somebody has one sense that is very weak, their other senses tend to grow stronger. And this man must have heard his disciples refer to Jesus by his name. That's the only logical explanation we can get out of this. Now, it's interesting, though, if you think about it, the blind man never saw Jesus after he is, was, was healed and he returned from the pool of Siloam. But Jesus had left the scene, okay? And that's the reason why they asked, where is he? Where is this man that is called Jesus? And his response was simple. Well, heck, I don't know where he's at. You, you know just as much about, about him as I do. I know, though, that he healed me. Now, this leads to the reaction of the neighbors. And what do they do? They've asked him their questions. What do they do? They probably grab him by his arm and say, okay, let's go talk to the people with some importance around here. Let's go talk to the Pharisees. Oh, boy. This is where it starts getting interesting. Look at verses 13 through 16. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. That opened up a whole Pandora's box just right there, okay? It's turned up a hornet's nest, all right? Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, but he does not keep the Sabbath. Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And then because of that, there was a division among them, John says. Jesus took all the initiative in this miracle, okay? He could have healed this man. You know that? Think about this. Jesus could have healed this man on Sunday, on Monday through Friday. He could have chose to heal him any other day. Why did he choose to heal this man on the Sabbath. This ain't his first go around with this. Jesus had a, a repetitious habit of healing on the Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, okay? Why? Very simple. Jesus was challenging the petty legalistic traditions that the Jewish leaders had put on top of the commandment that keeping the Sabbath holy, all right? He was challenging those add-on rules of the religious leaders. And somehow these add-on rules, all these petty legalistic ideas actually become binding law to the Jews. Now, think of this, and I didn't know this until this week, looking over this, one of the categories of work 
they said you can't work at all. Their definition of work may be different than someone else's. But one of the, the do nots, a particular specificity of work was kneading. Not knitting like women do with crocheting, whatever. Kneading. I got to thinking of needing, like kneading bread. I got to thinking of that episode of I Love Lucy where the men and women decide to go back and live 50, 60 years earlier or before that, before there was electricity. They had to do everything with, with uh, elbow grease. And Lucy and Ethel um, were kneading, tending to this this homemade bread they were going to make. And Lucy got out this big old giant blob of dough and laid it on the counter. And now we got to knead it. And she's just digging her hands in there and, and getting it all shaped. And it comes out to be a, a big loaf as long as Mount Vernon ended up being. That's That was kneading, okay? Like kneading bread. Did you know, though, that they classified what Jesus did? Spitting on the ground and taking his hand and working up that clay and that dirt and molding it into that to that packing mud, they considered that kneading. <laughs> How stupid. I'm sorry. It's just stupid. He was kneading, so therefore he broke the, their traditions of work. You ain't allowed to knead on the Sabbath. How dare you? A woman couldn't even pluck the eyebrows on her forehead, as women so much do, because they got to look so nice and pretty. They don't want all these extra little hairs floating around. That was against the Jewish traditional law. How ignorant. But anyway, that was the legalistic petty things that Jesus was challenging. Guess what? You can lay all those traditions out, Pharisees. I'm going to show you those, how petty those things are. That's why Jesus chose to, and he had a sense of humor. You know he had to have inside. That's why he chose to do that on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. Now, one commentator said about this, listen to this, he said, quote, works of necessity and mercy never could be forbidden on that day by him whose name is mercy and whose nature is love. For the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Were it otherwise, the commentator says, the Sabbath would be rather a curse than a blessing. How true that is. And because of that, the Pharisees said, there's no way this man is from God. He didn't even keep the Sabbath holy, but that was according to their standards, okay? And of course, John says this created a division among the people. They were, they were in an uproar on which position to take. Two different choices. Many were saying Jesus was a sinner and that he should be rejected. He should be cast out. And others were understand, understanding that all these Jewish petty legalistic ideas, traditions were totally wrong. A lot of them probably didn't want to go with all that. They were restricted on the day of rest. They couldn't do nothing. You know, so the question comes up, how can a sinner perform such signs? The Pharisees ask. Now that leads to the them re-questioning the blind man. They didn't like the how question. They, they didn't like that, the, high, the how question, the answer they got. So they're going to move more to the, the who subject. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. So they said to the blind man again, this ain't the first or second time. This was repetitive. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight. These Pharisees already at this point, they already had their mind made up, didn't they? They had it made up from the beginning. They wanted to see this man's opinion about Jesus. And what did he say? He's a prophet. They said He, he said, he's a prophet. Remember, though, when Jesus held that man up and applied that mud, that 
clay product to his eyes. He never said, go wash in Siloam and you'll be healed, did he? He didn't make that prophecy. He just said, go to the pool of Siloam. But though, however, though, in Jesus' actions, it sure to me kind of implied something was going to happen. Though he just didn't do it just for just just to, as a busy work for this man to do to get him out of his way as he continued on in his evangelistic journey, his missionary journey. There was a purpose behind this. Now, but from this man's perspective, though, think of this: since Jesus did uh, do the perform that, putting that mud and telling him to go wash. And when he did wash the mud off his eyes and he was healed, and when he come back and Jesus wasn't there, perhaps he thought that Jesus did have a prophecy uh, of his sight being restored if he would just do what Jesus had told him to do. Now, of course, the Jews absolutely refused to believe him. They didn't believe a word that he was saying. They asked him over and over, not just twice here. I guarantee you there were more times. He said again and again, they were asking this man. They were interrogating him. They were questioning him. John says they didn't ever even believe that this man was born blind, much less that Jesus even healed him. Now, that's how far off these Pharisees were in their thinking. Their hardness of heart towards the Messiah was very strong. It was so great. They had a hardness of heart. They refused to acknowledge this man's blindness ever existed. Now, I have a hard time believing that because this man was very noticeable to the neighbors. Isn't this this man all his life? when he was old enough to be able to do things kind of on his own? Isn't this the same man that begged and pleaded for people for mercy to give him things? Don't you think the Pharisees seen this man before? I guarantee it they did. If they didn't, they were blind, physically blind, because they, they'd have to be ignorant not to see this man in his ailment, his blindness. The Bible says he was a beggar and he was blind, okay? But despite, the, desperate though for an answer, they moved on to another alternative source. If we don't like we don't like the answer you're giving us, we're going to move on to somebody else who might be able to give us the answers that we need, much less what we really want to hear in their in their interrogation. And Gary brought up the House Committee's January sixth committee, that bogus committee that's out there that's one sided. They're just another type of Pharisees in what they're doing. They don't want to, they're not interested in hearing facts. They've got a predetermined judgment already about what happened, and they're going to stick with that until the end. They'll edit videos and what uh, former President Trump said and who did this, and, and they won't refuse to answer the questions about what about this particular man, A or B, who hasn't been seen since, who were part amongst all that ruckus. We know exactly what that was, but we're here to talk about the Pharisees, all they are are a type of Pharisees. Nothing Solomon said is new under the sun. Nothing has ever changed in even 2,000 years. So what do they do? They look to another source to get the answers they want. In the latter half of verse 18, I'll read verse 18 again. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. Here we go. Until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioning them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he see now? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. The Pharisees though, you'll have to give them this much. They wanted confirmation 
that th their son was really blind. You have to give them credit for that point. They wanted confirmation. They didn't believe the man who was blind, once was blind, but now had perfect sight because of Jesus Christ and Christ alone and the power of God. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted confirmation that he actually was blind. Now, I don't know about you, but something tells me, but in we don't know their exact tone just by what we read in, in the text that uh, they may have even thought, possibly, you know what, we're questioning his parents. His parents very well may be part of this alleged scheme, this alleged story, this make-believe story about this man being healed by this man, this sinner called Jesus. They very well could have believed that, but yet the parents, did. they did verify that yes, the man in question was indeed their son, and yes, that he was born blind. Now, you would think, after getting that answer and confirmation, that the Pharisees may have a little bit of change of mind, a little bit of change of heart, to realize that something remarkable had happened, and even more so, there are a remarkable man sent from God in their midst. You would think that they would have that kind of thinking, but they didn't. They continued their interrogation. Now look at the response of the parents after the Pharisees' second question. Look at verse 21. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself, they responded. I'm sure, though, at this point, even after answering that question, trying to push away this the subject off of them back to their son, that they, I believe they really, truly had accepted the idea that there was a man out there who actually healed their son. They seen it. It's their own child. They had witnessed his suffering since he had been born. They had helped, they raised him, but yet he was still blind. And they would welcome any solution to this, to their child's healing, okay? But why the response though? John tells us, we don't have to dig anywhere in scripture. He tells us exactly why they responded the way they did. Look at verses 22 and 23. His parents said this because they were what? Afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They were completely afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue. That tells me that they believed in what Jesus had actually done. Because if they had confessed that, they'd have been out pew, right then. Excommunicated, some uh, uh, commentaries put. Excommunicated or put out, cast out of the synagogue. But let this little detail reminder of what Jesus said of things like this that it has happened and will continue to happen. Look at John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then Paul was taught young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not maybe, not possibly, but will be persecuted. Can't get any more plain than that. But Jesus gives us some assurance in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. He said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, and let me ask you, if you're a Christian, you're out there listening to this, how far are 
at myself. How far are you willing to go for Jesus? That is a tough but yet fundamental question. We haven't had that put on our doorstep yet, but it's coming to the shores of the good old United States of America. We're seeing little remnants of it right now. Northern Africa, Middle East, China, North Korea, you keep naming a lot of these countries and regions who are not allowed to stand up for the truth of the gospel, not allowed to stand up for the name of Jesus. They're being persecuted. Many, no telling in the last 2,000 years, how many have been martyred for their faith. That's what Jesus was talking about. It's relatively easy right now to accept Christ in the United States with little to no persecution, but it's going to change. It's going to change. And, I, and I, this is not a new idea by me. Jesus said it until his second coming. Get ready. Those tribulations, those trials, those pressures are going to intensify like birth pangs and even signs of his second coming. And with that's going to come persecution of the church. You know, right now, though, in society, in America, this is why this is nuggets of this is coming, coming to fruition, why we better be on our toes and be ready. We have in society, they've adopted these many different ideas and celebrate the idea of a critical race theory, the name of social justice, family reconstructionism. That's where it's all started. Satan can destroy this country, destroy churches, if he can take care of that little four walls first. When he takes that down, everything else, just like a domino effect, can, can happen. And we're seeing it happening more and more as we move further along, closer to the end of time. Now, if you say and you, you say or you dictate or speak or even write down standing for against these things, standing for righteousness, get ready. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be um, canceled. They call it the cancel culture. You better be ready for that. It's going to happen. Many people, businesses, and God forbid it, even many churches who say they stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, they're falling for this stuff to keep from being put out by society, being cast out, excommunicated from functioning in the world for their own peace and safety. That's what was going on here with the blind man's parents. We as Christians should never do that at all. A day is coming, listen to me very carefully, a day is coming when we're going to have to make a decision. We all love our country. Who does not love our country? If you don't love your country, raise your hand. None of us here are going to do that. I hope none of you out there can not say that you don't love that. Please don't say you don't love your country. We live in the greatest country in the history of the world because of Judeo-Christian values and what it stood for. But America has slowly through the years, in the last 100, 150 years, has been turning away from God little by little by little by little, turning away from God. And God says, I'll bless those who bless me and I'll curse those who curse me. Not just Israel, but God himself. We're trying to do things our way instead of God's way. And there is a day coming. I know I'm getting off and getting off here a little bit, but this, this ties in with these parents and their fear of the Jews. There is a day come, coming. And yes, we do respect and pray for our military who are fighting for this country 
to preserve the rights God has given us through our Constitution and our founding fathers who had the knowledge by God to put it together. There is a day coming when we're going to have to choose between God and country, and for us, there is no choice. We are to obey God rather than man and the United States government. We better be ready because one of these days, that choice is going to come knocking at our doorstep, and we have to be ready to defend our faith and say, United States, your go our government is wrong because they say the Bible is full of error and what is in it is not true. That we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's God-breathed, it's inspired for reproofing, for reproof, for teaching. That's how God speaks to us through His Word. We better be ready to defend our faith and God's Word. It is coming. Now, these parents, back to the parents, that's why all this tied in here, refuse to be caught up in the middle of any kind of controversy in order to save their own neck, okay? That's exactly what it was here. So they revert the attention back to their son. And again, the religious leaders, they don't stop. They're like, they're like a bunch of hungry, ravaged, starved dogs who will fight for any kind of food they can get. They are continuing their interrogation like that bogus committee in Washington, D.C. They interrogate this blind man once again who is now healed. And within these next two verses, he's going to give his testimony. Look at verses 24 and 25. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered them, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was once blind, but now I see. I love that. I was once blind, but now I see. That word trip up came up a few times this morning in Sunday school. People are trying to trip up Christians today, get them to mess up. Satan is ultimately behind that. They were trying to trip up this man. They were saying to give God glory, even though that, according to them, this man was a sinner and that this man knew he was a sinner. We want you to give glory for what God, this man had done, according to their thinking, the, the religious leaders thinking. They believe he may have been holding something back, which would have made show Jesus to have been a sinner. But you see, the religious leaders they believed Jesus was a sinner, not because that he had broke the law of God in the Old Testament. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what made him upset. It was the idea and the notion that Jesus didn't obey their man-made traditions put upon the Sabbath. That's what infuriated him. Not that he just broke the Sabbath and the Old Testament law. He didn't really break it. It was the traditions. He was needing. Big deal, you know. But to them, it was a major deal. You weren't allowed to need on that sat any Saturday whatsoever. They said that despite the evidence, not because of it. The blind man wasn't clear, though. He said whether Jesus is a sinner or, or not a sinner, I don't know, but I do know one thing. I was once blind, but now I see. From that moment on, the argument was irrefutable at that moment. And they knew that the evidence of the parents' confirmation and then the realization of the man's healing. Now, from time to time in our Christian walk, we're going to be asked questions. If you haven't, you will. You're going to meant to embarrass us in order to mock us or even trip us up. The opposition, that's what Satan, he'll use your own family. He'll use your co-workers. If you're walking right with Jesus, he'll use those people to try to trip you up somehow to get you off your walk, whether it's through science or social issues, whatever, things to try to discredit your faith discredits 
the Bible will able to do. But just like just like this man here, even though he wasn't at this point a believer, at this point in the story, he was not a genuine Christian at this moment. But his faith, though, the encouragement, the hope he had was so conditioning, conditioning him, getting him ready for that climactic ending that we're going to talk about next Sunday. He couldn't have been too knowledgeable about the things of Jesus at this moment. His experience with Jesus, though, gave him such encouragement and faith and that there is hope for us all. There's hope. This shows there is hope for us all. Even though his entire life he thought all hope was lost, Jesus proved him otherwise. But Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, he said, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the what? The hope, the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We know, though, in our Christian life, we don't base our faith on our personal experiences whatsoever. Those personal experiences leads later on to our faith. Look at this and this. We base our faith upon God's truth revealed to us through how His written word, the Bible. We base our faith upon God's truth revealed to us through His written word, which is the Bible. Please look at verses 26 and 27. So they said to him, what did he do to you? He, how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Oh, boy, I love that last part. Do you want to become his disciples too? You know, this man was beginning to become aggravated. I think he was well beyond aggravation. And he was frustrated with their intense questioning. I called it this morning an interrogation. That's exactly what it was, like the January 6th committee. They're interrogators. They don't only hear, want to hear one side. So they are all they are are modern-day Pharisees. I told you that. Just modern-day Pharisees. Now, we all know... You know how that feels when the same question is asked over and over and over again. Parents, when your children were little, why? Why? Or the one we get from Isabella, are we almost there? Are we there yet? We weren't five minutes down the road. Are we almost there? Are we almost there? Are we there yet? It gets aggravating, doesn't it? Here's what Jennifer and I tell her. Sit back and enjoy the ride. We'll tell you when we get there. Then a few minutes later, are we almost there are we there yet? It will drive you up the wall. If it doesn't, please tell me that you enjoy that kind of rhetoric over and over and over. That's exactly how this blind man must have felt with the religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees. They kept having him over and over and over about the same thing. You know, he said, I told you already, and you goofs, you didn't even listen to me. Are you not listening? Clean your ears out. I've told you multiple times. But this, this man, what he was doing was showing profound and a simple wisdom in his back-and-forth conversation with the well-educated religious leaders. They kept asking the same questions, but guess what? They kept getting the same exact answer. He wasn't changing his answer at all. One commentator said about this confrontation here, he says, quote, As the mercy of God had given him his sight, so the wisdom of God taught him how to escape the snares laid for his ruin. The wisdom of God. Then he, asked, then he asked, according to the Pharisees, the insulting, slap-in-the-face question, do you want to become his disciples? I bet that just got their blood boiling. You know, I believe this man at this point was, mock, was mocking them, their prejudice, 
and their rejection toward Jesus. It almost seems as if he was proclaiming himself to be a disciple. He was showing the attributes of what a Christian should be like. Although he was doing the work of a Christian, at this point, he still had not given his life to Christ. That was coming at the climactic end of this chapter, chapter which we're going to get into next Sunday. But even though he was telling them all this, I don't believe he really believed in his heart that they were going to have a change of mind or change of heart. Those Pharisees were dead set on one thing, that Jesus was a sinner. He was a blasphemer. They didn't want to hear anything else. There, there's not two sides to every story. It's one-sided, and it's the Pharisees' way, or it's no way. That's exactly how they felt. Now let's look at verses 28 through 31. They reviled him. That means they abused him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples, they said, of Moses. Okay? They revered Moses because of the law. All right? Abraham was a spiritual forefather. He was great. But Moses, phew, he, take, he took the cake. Now let's continue on. We know that God's, God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Another, another jab at the Pharisees. You know, and we'll get into, we'll break that down in just a moment. The religious leaders, though, they were very proud people. They were proud and they were full of arrogance and couldn't keep from displaying it. They loved to show off, you know, how religious and how self-righteous they were. And they were proud and, and, and they're arrogant, you know, but that they were very proud to show their prejudicial treatment and beliefs towards Jesus. They referred to him as, quote, not the man, but this man. That showed their prejudice prejudicial contempt for the, the Savior. But the hill man gives another jab back to the religious leaders by saying, he said, here is an amazing thing. What an amazing, miraculous thing that just happened. Not about the miracle of Jesus. What? Yeah, that was an amazing thing, but there was something else he was talking about too. He was referring to the amazing thing. Guess what it was? Their unbelief. After everything that had happened, his testimony the parents' testimony about, yes, he was born blind. Yes, he now sees. Guess what? They still couldn't believe that was a miracle in itself. You with most people would take that evidence and run with it and say, okay, yes, I conform to that idea. Yes, I believe that happened, but not the Pharisees. What I just say a minute ago, everything was one-sided. They were blinded to the truth. It was as if he was telling those religious leaders, your unbelief and ignorance, despite everything I've been telling you, is more than a miracle than the miracle of me being healed. That's what he was saying to them. Then he says that God doesn't hear sinners. Here we go again. Boy, he was really taking it to these Pharisees. I commend this man for what he was doing. He was standing up for what he believed was right, and it was right, but he was, he was referring to them as sinners. Oh, boy. If anybody was not classified a sinner, it was the Pharisees. They were, they were almost uh, perfect in their own, in their own uh, opinions and in on their own minds. You know, he says that God doesn't hear sinners. Here's a question. Is that really true? I've had that question asked before. Is that really true? Does God hear the prayer of the lost? Does he hear their prayer? Well, look at Psalm 66, verse 18. The psalmist says, If I regard wickedness in my heart... The Lord will not hear. You have to have what is a blameless heart 
for God to hear. And then John says in 1 John 3, 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So then, with that saying, the answer in general, let me finish, is no. God does not hear the prayers of an unrepentant heart, a blameful heart. He does not hear the prayers. A lost person who has no no, no, no um, uh, inclination on giving their life to Christ and they're living a sinful life and all of a sudden something bad happens. You ever notice that people, people who never, you never ask for prayer, they live their life, they don't go to church, they don't profess anything except what, what they're doing in their lives. All of a sudden they, they need prayer for something. It's always funny. They use God as a, as a spare tire and when they're done with him, they throw it right back into the trunk and close the lid only whenever they need it again. That is God. They'll get him out and try to use him. God refuses to be used in that way because he does, he's not going to be obligated. Nothing can thwart him to doing what he doesn't want to do. He's not obligated to hear the prayer of an, of an unrepentant heart. Okay? Now, only when they are convicted, though, when that unrepentant heart finally comes under conviction by the Holy Spirit, at that moment... They're repentive, and they ask for forgiveness. Then, then God hears that prayer, all right? But yet at times, there are exceptions to the rule. Let me Listen to me. In his mercy and for his ultimate purpose, he may hear an unrepentant sinner. Like I said, that's not a norm. That's the exception to the rule. It's not the rule. God can do as he chooses. If he wants to hear Vladimir Putin tomorrow, and I pray that God's will soften, the Holy Spirit will soften that man's heart and stop all that evil carnage that's going on in the country of Ukraine. I'm not defending that, that government. They're as crooked as a dog's hind leg. But the innocent men and women and children that are suffering and many are dying because of one man's personal agenda to reestablish whatever it is he wants to do, that's for another subject for another time. If Vladimir Putin comes to repentance, God will hear his prayer. Otherwise, if he just prays, pray, God, I want you to help me finish this up. That ain't going to happen. I want you to finish this job. God is not going to listen to him or anyone else who has a blameful heart. Because the Bible just says, I'll give you two verses just then. Also remember, though, Christians sometimes can fall, can have a back, you ever heard, backslidden, okay? They might, they might get caught up and entangled in sin and kind of put God on the side because they want to do things their way. God's waiting, and he's waiting for them to come back with a repentant heart. But he's not going to listen to them because you ever heard of tough love? Tough love. Sometimes there's a thing called tough love, and God can, will, can and will exploit and use it even on his own children, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the great evangelist from the 20th, uh, excuse me, the 19th century said, if Christ had been an imposter, it is not possible to conceive that God would have listened to his prayer and given him the power to open the blind man's eyes. Now, the man continues in the defense of Jesus. He ain't finished with them yet. Look at verses 32 and 33. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Last Sunday, I told you, this was the first time in the history of the world no prophet, no apostle ever healed a blind man who was blind at birth. This was the first time. 
right? You just said it right here, okay? This was the first time it actually had happened. That was a miracle in, in and of itself, all right? Well, now at this point, the religious leaders believing that they're holier than now, they were incensed. They were seething. You could just, I could just see the steam coming out of their ears. It makes me think of Shemp off the Three Stooges. He drunk some kind of concoction they made up, and he drunk it. Boom, 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 boom. All of a sudden, his eyes got real big, and the steam coming, started coming out of his ears. That's what the Pharisees look. They look like Shemp off the Three Stooges. The steam was coming. They were enraged. They probably, if they could have got away with it, they probably would have grabbed that man and had him taken him to the Romans and had him executed for blasphemy, which they would later do accuse our Savior, Jesus Christ, of. Now, look at verse 34. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So what they do? They put him out. They cast him out. They despised common people. Like I said, they thought they were holier than now. And they were angry because he was right, and they were wrong, and they knew it. That's what incensed them. So as a result, John says he got cast out. That meant... No more gatherings, you know, for Saturday evening meals at the synagogue. No more laughs at the synagogue. No more praying at the synagogue or at the temple. He had no rights whatsoever to be there. Again, they done made their mind up. Earlier it said any of them, anybody who acknowledged Jesus was out. That's why his parents technically didn't lie about his son, identifying their son, but what they didn't want to answer was how did it come to be? How did he come to be healed? They refused to mention the name of Jesus at all out of fear of being excommunicated, put out of the synagogue. They treated him terribly. They reviled him. They insulted him. They rejected him. And however, think about this. Him being excommunicated from the temple and the synagogue actually was probably a good thing. You think, what? Are you crazy? It's a good thing. Actually, think about it. It was because this would set up him being available and be ready to come face to face one more time with the Savior. Jesus. You don't think God knows exactly what he's doing? His timing is impeccable. He was excommunicated. Heck with them because the Savior of the world was going to do so much more. He was getting ready to save his soul. That's what was coming next. Well, verses 8 through 34, this morning and this evening, the controversy and confrontation of a, of a blind man healed. I asked you this morning, What's the application? Did anybody think about it? What does that mean to us today? In closing, two things. First of all, and pay very close attention to this, we must stop being self-righteous. What? Me? Me? Self-righteous? Call contraire. I'm not like them other people. We'll get, to the, we'll get to that in just a moment. The Pharisees were example. They were prototype number one of self-righteous. I've been talking about it all this morning and this afternoon how self-righteous they were. They're right, and you're not. I'm better than you. You're worse than I am. That's exactly how they felt because they were holier than thou, so esteemed, you know, and they made sure everybody knew it and seen it. They absolutely loathed anyone trying to teach them. That's why they said, are you teaching us, you sinner? You were born in sin. Don't teach us. Out you go. That's exactly what happened to the healed blind man. And all of their lives, they were taught and they studied and prepared for a coming Messiah. He was there, but they rejected that opportunity for Messiah. Jesus said, I'll give you, I'll, I'll establish my kingdom right now. He, don't look in the heavens. Don't look everywhere else. I'm right here, right in your midst. 
They're too dumb to even realize it. He was right there. Okay? They were right there. Too many Christians today, though, are self-righteous. We should never look upon others uh, as less than we are. Okay? We should never, ever think that, that we are no better than them. Okay? The only difference is the lost and the saved are two different masters. We all serve the same master in the beginning. We serve Satan. And then when God called us into his family, we just changed masters. We just changed masters. We now serve the one and true God of the universe. We will not be able to truly perform God's kingdom work if we aren't humble, remembering where we came from. Now, remember the story, the parable in Luke chapter 18? I had to tie this in. This is a perfect example, example I'm talking about. Talking about two men, Jesus gave the parable. Two men, in Luke 18, he said, two men only went to the temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. They went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee said, God, I thank you so much. That sounds good, right? But it doesn't stop there. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a sinner like other people are or like this tax collector over here to my left. He went on to say, I pay my tithes. I fast twice a day. I'm not like them other people. I told you, they loathe, they didn't like the common people, okay? And especially tax collectors. That's a whole different sermon, why they didn't like tax collectors. Who likes to pay taxes now? <laughs> I don't. We're overtaxed. Anyway, it was all about me. I, I, I. But Jesus said the tax collector, when he went to pray, he looked up to heaven and he was beating his chest and he said, God, be merciful, merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner. Jesus said the tax collector went away justified rather than the Pharisee. And then he gives the application in Luke 18, the second half of uh, verse 14. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I love that story. Great story. We must stop being self-righteous. And number two, probably even more importantly, I've touched on it a little bit. We must fear God rather than men. We better fear God rather than men. Jesus had just performed this magnificent miracle. He healed this blind man. Many thought it was too good to be true. I told you absolutely. It was absolutely true. The parents of all people, they could have testified to an absolute truth in what had happened. I'm sure they real probably down deep, I said this morning, probably really wanted to, but they were scared. They were afraid of being cast out, canceled, if you will, from the synagogue, canceled from the temple. Now, you may be thinking, well, the parents really didn't lie with the son. Yes, that's true. They did acknowledge that that was their son, and yes, he was born blind, and yes, now he does see but then that was as far as it went. We don't know how in the world it happened. Go talk to him. He's of age. But we know that they were not physically uh, present to witness what had happened, but they could have seen, they seen it with full proof, with their own uh, two, uh, four eyes. They seen exactly what had happened, that their son had been healed. However, to play it safe, they gave the neutral answer, not really showing much favor towards their son at all. They showed no favor towards him in his healing. Now, they may have wanted to give Jesus the praise, like I said, but the glory that he deserved, but they sidestepped that, okay? And John says in verse 22, they were absolutely afraid of the Jewish leaders, all right? They feared men more than they feared 
God. They missed a golden opportunity to be on God's side rather than be, rather to be on man's side. I don't know about you. I want to be on the side of God. Amen. I want to be on God's side. In our Christian lives, many times doing the right thing can, and listen to this, will bring trouble. You better count on it. It's going to happen. One commentator said, listen to this, taking the path of righteousness can lead us to the valley of the shadow of death. We shouldn't be surprised at that because Jesus said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. He says, but in this world you will have tribulation. You'll have trials. The better word is pressure. You're going to have pressures. He, but take courage because I have overcome the world. No matter what trial, what tribulation, what pressure you may be facing, God sometimes will decide to take us out of that. Every now and then, he'll take you out of that situation. But most of the time, he sees us through those troubles. He sees us through those troubling waters and those situations. God is more powerful than anything in this universe. Nothing comes into comparison. Nothing will come close. As powerful as Satan is, it's like this compared to God's mass power and what he does. There's really nothing for us to fear because God is with us. Now, that commentator said, mentioned the valley of the shadow of death. Where we hear that from? Psalm 23. I'm going to wake you all up. We're going to recite Psalm 23 right now. All together in unison, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Just like that blind man was healed, every opportunity uh, to fear is also an opportunity to trust in God. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Do you have a fear right now? Is there something in your life that's just got you totally scared? You know, there's a lot of evil going on out there in this world right now. I talked about it a little bit this morning. It's because of sin. Sin has infected every single part of our world, every single part of our lives and our families, our jobs, everything we come in contact with is because of sin and it has tainted everything. Only Jesus is going to make it right one day. Maybe you are not at that point of following Christ, but you want to. You can have that opportunity right now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And then you won't have to fear no more once you make that commitment of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But it takes God's Holy Spirit doing so. If you're being convicted by God's Holy Spirit, you say, what is that? 
it is the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, you'll know exactly what it is because every born-again believer felt God's Holy Spirit convict him, letting them know, hey, you're a sinner and the only way out is to accept the blood of Jesus that he shed on Calvary. You can make that decision right now. Don't hold off on it because the enemy Satan is going to tell you you don't have to do it right now. God is a cosmic killjoy. He don't want you to enjoy life. You can uh, do as you please right now and then later on come to faith in Christ. Well, that might be true, but here's the one problem. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed life the next five minutes. And if you haven't made that decision for Christ, you will be separated from him forever and, forever and ever, eternally separated in hell. You don't want that. We don't want that for anybody. The Bible says that he does. He wants to all come to repentance um, and not perish the Bible teaches. So right now, if you're uh, convicted by God's Holy Spirit, you can say this simple prayer of faith with me silently in your heart or out loud knowing God is listening and waiting for you with open arms to make that simple prayer of faith. Say this with me. Dear God, I thank you for loving me. And I understand that I know that I'm a sinner and I am truly sorry for those sins in my life. But I believe what I heard today, that you love me so much. You sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins, taking the punishment that I deserve on that old rugged cross for my sins. And I'm trusting in what Christ and Christ alone did to save me of my sins. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And right now I am praying that you will help me spend the rest of my life committed to serve you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it with all your heart, you don't have to fear anymore. But the enemy's going to come at you. But now you have an advocate. You have Jesus who's making intercession for us right now in heaven, defending us because we are one of his children, a child of God. Don't just sit on that and wait for this uh, sweet by and by to come. We have a lot of work to do in our Christian walk. The first thing you do as a new Christian, give a testimony like that blind man did. He testified about what had happened to him. Although he wasn't a Christian yet, it's coming. We'll talk about it next Sunday. He made a testimony. That's just telling everybody about what Christ just did for you. He took your sins. He forgave you because you really meant business with him and he'll mean business with you. He takes your sins, the Bible says, he throws them into the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, never, ever, ever encouraged or even tempted to bring them up because God can't be tempted whatsoever. He's perfect in every way, shape, and form. He'll never bring those sins up and you tell that testimony about what it, to anyone and everyone who will listen, family, friends, coworkers, you're planting that seed to which very well could lead to somebody else in faith in Christ. You'll be doing God's work. And then make sure you get into a Bible-believing church that teaches the whole counsel of God's words. From Genesis to the maps, they don't cherry-pick certain scripture. Well, what makes you going to feel good today? They don't teach prosperity preaching about God wants you to have the happiest life that you can have and have an overabundance of money and overabundance of possessions. That is not what the Bible teaches. God will take care of you in other ways but he has his plan and specific purpose for you. Get into that Bible-believing church, especially that teaches about sin because sin is what has infected everything in this world. And one day Christ is going to make it right. Make sure that they don't skip out 
on all the important things. They teach the whole counsel of God's work. Just like this church, this little church, Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. Our information is on our Facebook page or on our website, pvbaptistchurch.org, where we have uh, uh, previous sermons on there. Our statement of faith is on there. Check us out the things we've got planned here, here in the near future, what we're going to be doing. If you can't get into this church, please, I implore you, get into another Bible-believing church. They're out there that teach the whole counsel of God's Word. Father in heaven, I pray to you right now that anyone that may have listened to this message, message and heard my call of invitation or some other great teacher of faith out there that had put out that call of invitation, I pray that no one would resist that call. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.